Hello, and thank you for connecting with us here at Oasis Online. If this ministry is an encouragement to you, I would love to hear from you. Would you send me an email at pastor at obclv.org? I hope you enjoy the service today and that God would speak directly to your heart. And he wanted me to continue this series on that he started last week on the attack of the heart. And it's a series that, uh, um, that emphasizes the um, focuses on the preventative measures we must put into our lives to prevent our spiritual heart from being attacked. Um, so often we hear about things that we need to get right, out of, right in our lives. In other words, things that we need to take out of our hearts or take out of our lives that, that interfere with our relationship with God. But what pastors focus on in this series is the things that we should be putting into our heart to protect us against the attack of the heart itself. You know, today we repeatedly hear things about uh, heart health, about having a healthy heart, about making sure that we eat the proper foods that are healthy for our heart, about getting the proper exercise, uh, getting up from our computers, uh, getting walking around, uh, doing the calisthenics. That's an old word, I guess, that you never hear anymore. But when I was in PE, we did calisthenics. We didn't do exercise. But uh, um, anyway, to exercise, to make sure that you get the proper uh, vitamins, take the proper supplements. Every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a a doctor talking about heart health and things that they've discovered about how to make your heart healthy. There are talk shows. There's radio shows. You have Dr. Oz on the TV. How many of you watch Dr. Oz? Um, He's interesting. I kind of like the guy just because he's a pretty dynamic individual. But, you know, if you were to take every supplement and eat every food that he recommends in one week, you will lose weight for two reasons. Number one, you'll be so broke from buying all those supplements that you don't have any money for food. And if you do have food, you're so full of all the supplements and the teas and everything else that you won't want to eat. But... uh, he does serve for purpose, and I'm not bad-mouthing him. He gets information out to people, and it's important. But when you look at this and you think that every time you see something on TV, it's talking about the heart, you know, in many ways that is generally warranted because I, I looked up the stats at, from the CDC, which is the uh, Center for D- Disease Control. Do you know what the leading cause of death of American men and women in the United States is? It's heart disease. That's the number one killer. You know, I thought it was going to be cancer or something like that, but it's not. It's heart disease. And uh, the stats that I looked up from them, there was uh, several things that really caught my attention. These uh, stats are about two years old, the latest ones I could get, that 610,000 people die of heart disease in America every year. 610,000. Every year, 735,000 adults in the United States have a heart attack. Three-quarters of a million people have that. And over 370,000 people die of one specific type of heart disease, and that's coronary heart disease. In other words, that's the plug arteries. And all of that is associated with what we do as far as what we eat, what we do as far as exercise, um, what we do as far as uh, smoking and things like that. All of that impacts us. So you can see the importance and why we get bombarded so much with this idea of having a healthy heart. 
Many of you in here have experienced that. I've experienced that. Not so much from the fact that uh, surgery was related to bypass surgery, but I had a heart birth defect that had to be taken care of. And there were complications associated with that. So it's very important because if your heart stops, what happens? You die. So that's the stress of that. Unless you die at some place or you have a problem, you're in a hospital where they can hook you up to a machine right away or get you a transplant, you don't have any options. You know, if you got a bad kidney, you got another kidney. You got a bad lung, you got another lung. You only got one heart. So you can see why they emphasize so much the fact of taking care of your heart. Well, not only do we have to take care of our physical heart, but it's our spiritual heart also that we have to be concerned about. And we have to take care of it. Last week when Pastor first started this series, he started out with uh, stressing the condition, the first thing that we need to put into our heart, and that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. But the key verses that he stressed was verses 5 and 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it says this, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. The first thing that we need to ensure that we have in our heart is that of love. And that's a command. Thou shalt love not other people. It says to love the Lord first. To love the Lord thy God with all thine heart. Well, today we're going to continue on with that series uh, on attacks against our heart. And our focus today is going to be on forgiveness. Forgiveness must be something that's incorporated into our lives to support a spiritually healthy heart. Forgiveness. What is forgiveness? Well, forgiveness is to uh, grant pardon to a person or to cease to feel resentment against someone. And when you think about that, you think, oh, you know, that's no big deal. Well, actually, it's amazing when you start to study forgiveness, the important aspects of forgiveness and the relationship it has on our heart and our condition. God's Word addresses the subject of forgiveness. There's uh, volumes of books that have been written about forgiveness in relationship to God's Word. Most of them address God's forgiveness to men, men's relationship or their forgiveness with God, the man's relationship with Christ, and Christ's relationship with man. But there hasn't been a whole lot of books written about the forgiveness of one person to another, one human to another. But you know, God's word stresses that over and over again. And that's what we want to look at today. That's going to be our focus about forgiveness one to another. Um, God has given us a mandate regarding forgiveness in his word. Um, There's a couple of verses that I want you to look at. Ephesians 4.32. We'll start with that. Ephesians 4.32. This is the first mandate. And it says, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Think about that. Forgiving one another. It's a mandate. What's a mandate? A mandate is a command. It's a direction. When I worked for the police department, that kind of sounds so weird because I worked for them for 35 years and I just retired after the first of the year. So now that's all past tense. But when I worked for the police department and when I worked in the crime scene investigation, I had a squad that worked for me. 
When I gave them direction or I gave them an order, that was a mandate that they had to follow. Oftentimes, we would get out to a crime scene. I'd give them direction. You get this assignment, you're to do this, you're to do this, and uh, take care of business. There was one time I had a situation where we needed some specialized equipment out at the scene, and I told one of my uh, crime scene investigators, I want you to bring out the major incident vehicle, the response vehicle. Well, he didn't like driving that vehicle. So he bolted out the door in his vehicle and started to started uh, the head away. And I got him outside and brought him back inside. And I said, I told you to take the other vehicle. He said, I didn't want to drive it. I said, what don't you understand about me telling you that you will take that vehicle? That is an order. It was not an option. You will do it now. Now, when I addressed that with him, I didn't realize how emphatic I was because we were in an office setting and we had multiple offices that were associated down the hallway. And it was amazing how all the way down the hallway, it got really quiet. <laughs> because I guess I kind of emphasized things a little much. But I needed to make that mandate clear to him that this is the way it was, and this is what we're going to do. God's given us a mandate. It says, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Let's look at another verse. This isn't an isolated incident. Paul had addressed the Ephesians. Then he talks to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, it says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. God's word tells us we're to forgive one another. The key to forgiving one another is remembering how much God has forgiven each one of us. Think about that. How much God has given so much for us. Is it difficult for you to forgive someone who has wronged you a little when God has forgiven you so much? You know, in Matthew chapter 18, it gives us a parable about a, uh, um, a debtor that owed a lot of money to a king. And the king went to put him in jail. And then uh, the debtor went to the king and explained the situation. And the king forgave him of his debt and released him. But then, when he was released, he went to someone else who owed him money, a small amount of money, and put that individual in jail. He didn't get the idea of forgiveness. Then when the king found out about what this guy had did, he went back to him and put him in jail and ensured that he didn't get out of jail until his debt was paid. But the example here is that um, we need to realize what God has done for us. And when we realize how much he's forgiven to us, it should be pretty easy for us to pass it on to others. Where must forgiveness take place? Forgiveness has to take place in the heart, or it's worthless. If forgiveness doesn't take place in the heart, it has no value. You know, we have two kids, and uh, many of you do have children. And our kids, they got along really well together. But occasionally, there were those moments where they'd get into an argument, a disagreement, a little fight, whatever. And, you know, usually... Um, Jason was usually the one that ended up kind of being the instigator because Alana was the older one and she was smart enough to know which buttons to push 
to get him agitated and then get him in trouble. So we'd have to separate them a little bit, and then I'd have to tell Jason, tell your sister you're sorry. You just sit there. Tell your sister you're sorry. I'm sorry. Tell your sister like you mean it. You're sorry. He'd take a deep breath, and then he'd tell her he's sorry. You know, but we never really had them hug each other or anything like that because I knew what the next step would be because you would have the death-crushing hug that would come, that they would hug each other, and then we'd have to start all over again. But in any of those times, did Jason really mean that he was sorry? He was sorry he got caught, you know, but he wasn't sorry really what he would do, what he did. And that's the same way with us. You know, if we're going to seek forgiveness or have someone forgive someone, we have, it has to be in the heart. It can't be from just our head. It just can't be from our mouth. Matthew twelve thirty four says this. It says, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. Here Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and they have just accused him of being of Satan. And Jesus addresses them, and he tells them, he says, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? Here Jesus is speaking of the Pharisees after they've accused him of, like I said, of being Satan. And what uh, he says here is, is a simple truth. What we say reveals what's in our heart. If we have not truly forgiven those who hurt us in our hearts, it's going to come out sooner or later. But if indeed has, but if indeed has taken place, that forgiveness, our words are going to show it. When there's bitterness, bitterness is going to manifest itself in our words. But when there's forgiveness, love is going to manifest itself in our words. And that's the importance of forgiveness, to be able to make that application. Now let's look at a couple examples. We've talked a little bit about forgiveness and what it means, but how does that really apply to our lives? Or how do we really view it or picture it? Well, let's use Jesus Christ as an example to begin with concerning forgiveness. If we were to look in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 15, it talks about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the events that took place during that time. It speaks of the uh, trial, that uh, the justice at the trial uh, that took place and the death sentence that was given. Um, We see that people, when Jesus was crucified, when he was on the cross, there was no one there that was sorry for seeing him other than his family on that cross. There was an atmosphere of anger towards Christ. There was an atmosphere of... uh, um, a perverse glee when they asked uh, to, what to do with Christ, and he, they shouted to crucify him. At the foot of the cross, they would walk by and insult him, shaking their heads, saying things such as, So you're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Come down from the cross and save yourself. They also shouted, let this, king of the, let this Christ, the king of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see him and believe it. Show us that you are the Christ. Come off of the cross. Now, can't you imagine Christ is suffering on this cross? He is bearing a lot of pain, a lot of humiliation. 
God has turned his back on his only son because out on the cross, Christ bore the sins of the world. And now Christ stands alone on a cross. And these people are in throwing insults at him. What was his response to them? If you were to look in Luke chapter um, 23, let me see here. Get ahead of myself. Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. It records Jesus' response to the people. It says, uh, Father, forgive them, for they know what not they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Wow. Think about that. He asked God the Father to forgive them. Now, Christ could have said, I forgive you. But you know, that crowd would have misinterpreted what he meant by that. But when he asked that God the Father forgive them, you know what Christ was really saying? He was saying he was asking the Father to forgive them and show them that not only had Christ forgiven them and released them from their guilt, but he was asking the Father not to punish them or not to revenge what they did to him on the cross by going to his Father and asking that. That is powerful stuff when he said, Father, forgive them. So Christ has set the example for us. As Christians, this must be our response also. You see, the proof of forgiveness takes place when we sincerely petition the Father to let those who've hurt us off the hook. You're not going to seek revenge. You're not going to allow the bitterness to come into your heart. You're going to allow the Father to deal with that. And when you let go of that, then the peace that follows is amazing. Now, when you look at that example, you say, okay, look, I understand Christ did that for us, and we're just supposed to be Christ-like, but Christ was the Son of God. I'm not the Son of God. I can't do something like that. Well, let's bring it down to our level. Let's look in the Old Testament, an example of forgiveness that was given that many of us can relate to. In the book of Genesis, chapters 37 through 50, 14 chapters there. Um, I'm talking a little long, so we won't read all 14 chapters right now. But all 14 chapters deal with the life of Joseph, the son of Jacob. Now, most of us have heard stories about Joseph. And Joseph, uh, uh, God used him in a mighty way. But uh, Joseph was an interesting character, and a lot of things happened to Joseph. A lot of things that we would term as unfair and unjust. Joseph was one of 12 brothers. He had 10 older brothers. He was the, um, but he was the firstborn uh, of Rachel, the uh, wife of one of the wives of Jacob, the wife that Jacob loved. And he was the firstborn of her. But he had ten older brothers through uh, um, his, this Rachel's sister and through a couple of handmaids. So we see that he's not at the top of the list. He's at the bottom of the list as far as being brothers. Now, how many of you are older brother or older, the oldest one in the family, the firstborn? You know, I was firstborn too. I got two younger brothers. And let me tell you something about younger brothers. They are a pain. Aren't they? Now, if you're a younger sibling, you're going to say the same thing about the oldest one. Because just like the example I gave with Alana and Jason, the oldest one always knows the buttons to push to get even with the younger ones. Always. 
And don't think we don't know that. And don't think we don't hesitate in pushing those buttons when we need to, just to get even. But see, so there's uh, issues in this family already. Now, there's a few other things that created problems for Joseph in this family. Um, Joseph was a tattletale, and usually younger brothers are. Um, When his brothers conspired to do evil, Joseph went to his father Jacob and told him what was going on. Needless to say, that didn't set well with the older brothers. Not only that, but Jacob singled out Joseph and gave him a coat of many colors and to signify that he has a special position of honor and a special love from the father. Well, the older brothers didn't get that, and needless to say, that didn't set well either. But then, Joseph, when he was a teenager, he had a couple of dreams. Now, this kind of falls on Joseph's fault because he was a teenager, and during that time when your brain is all screwed up as a teenager, you do stupid things. Well, Joseph did a stupid thing. He had two dreams. And in these two dreams, it basically uh, referred to the fact that he was going to, his brothers were going to bow down to him in, this, in, the, in the future. Now, it's not bad to have that dream. The problem is, Joseph went and told his brothers. Not a wise move. Not at this time in this stage in his life. And as a consequence, that pushed the brothers over the edge and decided it was time to address the issue. We're going to have to kill our brother. We're going to have to do something. This is outrageous. We will never bow down to our brother. And so they had a conspiracy. They uh, figured they were going to kill him, and then they had to change their heart and ended up in selling Joseph as a slave to the Ishmaelites that were traveling by. And the Ishmaelites were headed to Egypt. And when they went to Egypt, uh, Joseph was sold as a slave to Potiphar. Now, Potiphar was a, uh, an Egyptian officer, a person of position, and um, he took in Joseph as a slave. And I'm sure Joseph's thinking, what has happened here? I don't understand this, what God is doing here. Joseph, uh, but when he was with Potiphar, he turned out to be a tremendous asset, a valuable employee to Potiphar. He was put in charge of the whole household, when Potiphar was away on business and things like that, Joseph was responsible for running the household, taking care of the daily operations, making sure everything else was taken care of, making sure the food was there, making sure uh, whatever bills or whatever needed to be paid. He was in charge, and he was taking care of that. And as a result, Potiphar's household was blessed because of it. And so Joseph, all of a sudden, you know, from being sold as a slave to a position that he's being held in this Egyptian officer's household, I'm sure he's feeling pretty good. But then there were problems arose. Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Jacob, or Joseph. And when that happened, Joseph did the right thing. He could have fallen victim to it, but he chose not to. He chose to honor God, and he fled. And how is he paid back for honoring God in this situation? Potiphar's wife goes to her husband and tells him that Joseph was the one that made the move on her, and Potiphar threw him into jail. So Joseph is now in jail in Egypt. Now, while he's there, he gets in touch with, uh, he connects up with uh, the keeper of the jail, and he's found favor in the eyes of the keeper of the prison there, and as time passes, he's basically put in a position to run the prison for the keeper. 
He's handling all the day-to-day operations. Keepers just sit back. But Joseph is taking care of business. He's learning what needs to be done. He's taking care of business, making sure the needs of the prisoners are met, taking, making sure that everything is taking place that needs to take place. And uh, he's in charge. And as time goes on, he's kind of in an elevated position. And then a couple more prisoners come in to, uh, the, into the prison, both of them for officers of the pharaoh of Egypt at that time. One was the chief baker. The other was the chief butler. And he was placed in that position, or they were placed in a position where they offended the pharaoh, and the pharaoh says, to prison you go. So they're there. Joseph is engaging conversation with them. They're talking. uh, Joseph's getting to know him a little bit. And then one night, both of these men, the butler as well as the baker, had dreams. And then the next day they met with Joseph during the rounds, whatever Joseph was doing, and he could see they're a little bit troubled, and he talked to them a little bit, and they said, we had a couple of dreams last night, and we don't understand what they were. Well, Joseph says, well, why don't you tell me about them, and I'll see what God reveals. So the butler and the baker both showed, told him their dreams, and Joseph came back to them and took to, talked to the butler and said, uh, hey, look, what this dream means is that in three days you're going to be released from the prison and you're going to be put back into the position that you held before. And uh, the butler's thinking, all right, cool. Well, the baker's pretty excited because he just heard what was going to happen to the butler. And then the, uh, Joseph turns to the butler and says, this is what your dream means. In three days, Pharaoh's going to put you to death. Now, in three days' time past, the butler is elevated back to his original position. And in three days, the baker's life is taken. Now, as the butler is being released, God's word tells us that Joseph approached the butler and said, Hey, look, when you get back to your position and you have contact with Pharaoh, would you tell Pharaoh about my situation? Would you tell me, tell him about me? And I'd like to get out of prison. I don't see any hope. I don't understand what's going on. But just mention my name. And the butler says, sure, no problem. Butler's released. Butler forgot all about it. Never said a word to Pharaoh. So at this point in Joseph's life, you know, he's got some situation that he's, he's facing. And uh, you're... And the situation is that he uh, um, has much really to be bitter about when you think about it. How many people up to this point have offended Joseph? And what were the consequences? His brother sold him as a slave. Potiphar's wife lied about him. He ended up in prison. And then... He asks a favor of the butler, and then the butler forgets about it and doesn't even tell Pharaoh about it. You would think that he would have something to be bitter about. I think most of us put in his situation would be. Because all Joseph has tried to do all his life is to do good. And every time he tries to do good, he's gotten slapped down. Now, if it was me, I would be upset with my brothers. I would be upset with... Uh, Potiphar's wife with the butler, but I'd probably be upset with God too. Because God, I don't understand this. Everything I've done is to honor you. 
and yet everything that has happened to me has not been good. Now, you're probably wondering, how does this have to deal with forgiveness? Well, two things I want to point out. First of all, God was working in Joseph's life, whether he knew it or not. Now, um, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones made this statement. He says that the worst thing that can happen to a man is to succeed before he was ready. You see, God was working. God wanted to ensure that Joseph did not come out of prison and embark on the next phase of his life until he was ready. God was working in his life, and he didn't know it. All he saw was the negative, the negative, the negative. And when we get into the next phase of his life, we're going to see that every experience he had was necessary for him to grow and to become the man he needed to be when it came time for him to rule. When he was sold as a slave into Potiphar's wife, or Potiphar became his uh, sold as slave to Potiphar, and he was in that household. In that household, he learned about the Egyptian culture. He learned the Egyptian language. He understood what it took to run a household, what needed to come in, what needed to come out, what was necessary for substance, uh, to provide substance for life and things like that. So it was a great learning experience for him, whether he realized it or not. Then he's thrown into prison. And in prison, he understands how the government works and how it functions and all that takes place and the logistics associated with that and who you answer to and things like that. Those were all tremendous learning experiences. And now he's still in prison. But then, two years after the butler was left out, Pharaoh has a dream. And Pharaoh has a dream... And he has actually two dreams. And and both dreams seem to say about the same thing, but he doesn't understand the dreams. And he calls all his advisors to him. And when he calls his advisors to him, they, they talk to him about it, and they all say, we don't know. Well, the chief butler was there. And all of a sudden, the light comes on. Wait a second. When I had a dream in prison, Joseph was there to interpret that dream. And so... The butler told, Joseph, uh, told the Pharaoh about Joseph, and so the Pharaoh called for Joseph. They went to the prison. They pulled Joseph out of prison. They cleaned him up. They shaved him, put him before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh told him, he said, I understand you can interpret dream, dreams. And, and Joseph basically said, it's God's the one in interpretation. Tell me your dream, and I'll tell you what it means if God reveals it to me. So he told him the dreams. God revealed to J- uh, Joseph what those uh, dreams meant. And he told him outright, he says, this is what the dream means. It means seven years you're going to have a very productive uh, harvest and things like that. But after that, seven years are going to come where there's nothing but famine. And so he told him the interpretation of the dream, but he went on further. He went on to tell the Pharaoh, Pharaoh, this is what you need to do. You need to set aside so much of the crops every year. And you need to store them. You need to have the proper administration. You need to find someone who's going to take charge of that and run that program to ensure that you have plenty of uh, food and things for the seven years of famine. So that's what Joseph told Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, that's good advice. So Pharaoh begins to look around. Well, who am I going to pick? And then he realized his best and only option was Joseph. 
And he put Joseph second in command in all of Egypt, the head of the program that was going to save the country for years to come. Now, you're asking yourself at this point, what in the world does any of this have to do with forgiveness? Now we're going to find out about forgiveness. In Genesis, take your Bibles and uh, turn over to uh, Genesis 45. Or if you want to read it, I think we got it all on the screen. Let me, uh, I want to read it from my Bible here. I rode my, wore my reading glasses so I'd make sure I could see this, so I'm going to read from my Bible on this one. Genesis uh, 45, verses 1 through 11. And this is what it says. Uh, uh, at this point, um, let, me, let me back up just a second. What's going to happen just prior to this? Uh, five, the seven years have passed. There's been two years of famine. And now the situation has come up that Jacob has sent his older sons, his ten older sons, to Egypt. And has told them, I need you to go down to Egypt to get some food because we're not going to make it. We need provisions. So the ten Boulder brothers go into Egypt, and they come before Joseph. Now, Joseph recognizes his brothers, and his brothers do not recognize Joseph. And as these men bow down before Joseph to show respect and honor, Joseph's dreams have now come true. His brothers have bowed down before him, seeking support, seeking funds, seeking food, and things like that. So, in, so that sets it up for chapter 45. And this is where we see that forgiveness comes in. We see the result of forgiveness. It says, Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. And he cried, Cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him. While Joseph made himself known unto his brethren, and he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the, and the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. You think they remembered the dream? Uh, I think so. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me. I pray you. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. Now look at verse 5. Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither. For God did send me, send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in which there shall neither be earring or harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you as a posterity in, earth, in the earth and to save your lives by the great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and lord over all of his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Haste ye and go up to my father and say unto him, Thus saith the son Thy son Joseph, God hath made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down unto me, tarry not, for thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen, and thou shalt be near unto me, thou and thy children, and thy children's children, and thy flocks, and thy herds, and all that thou hast. And there will I nourish thee, for yet there are five years of famine, 
lest thou and thy household and all that thou hast come to poverty. Joseph has called his brothers together. Say, hey, look, I don't want you to feel bad about what took place. Because God was involved in this. Joseph was in a position that he could have punished his brothers. He could have put them to death. He had the authority to put them in prison for the rest of their lives. He had the authority to revenge what they had done to him, to avenge what they had done to him. He was put in that position. But Joseph, at this point, was a changed man because there was no bitterness. The moment finally came when he revealed himself to his brothers, and it was the moment that he had dreamed of when he was a teenager. Instead of punishing his brothers for their evil deeds against him, which he had the power to do, he wept, filled with love, demonstrated forgiveness. He wept. He cried before them. See, out of his heart, his actions were seen. His words were seen. The love within his heart for his brothers was shown because of forgiveness that was granted. And this is something that's so important in our lives. When you and I have been wronged or offended by another person's actions, there are basically two ways we can respond. Another one, the first one is to forgive them. And then the other one involves bitterness. One involves forgiveness, one involves bitterness. Both of these will manifest themselves differently in your lives. You know, bitterness will manifest itself in several different ways. It's going to lead to a short temper. It's going to lead to high blood pressure, sleeplessness, irritability, depression, isolation, the obsession of getting even, a constant negative perspective, and generally just not feeling well. And the reason being is that the Holy Spirit is grieved and quenched by the presence of bitterness. Hebrews 12 Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 states this. It says, Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby may be defiled. Here it speaks of bitterness as a small root. And this small root grows into a big tree. And bitterness springs of our hearts and overshadows our relationship with God, our relationship with other Christian brothers, and because of bitterness. Forgiveness, on the other hand, allows the Holy Spirit to be himself in us. When the Holy Spirit is not grieved because we have forgiven someone, he is at home in us, and he will begin to change us into the individuals he wants us to be And we will be able to manifest the gentleness of the Spirit. That's exactly what happened to Joseph. When the Holy Spirit, he was at home with him, began to change and to work in the individual's life to be what he wanted to be, to be what manifests the gentleness that God wanted him to be. Relinquishing bitterness is an open invitation for the Holy Spirit to give you peace, joy, and knowledge of his will. And that is so important that we have to have that. If you want true peace in your life, if you want God to work in your life, there has to be forgiveness, and it has to come from the heart. Now, you may say, well, you don't understand what's been done to me, how I have been violated, and 
how I have been treated or maybe even other circumstances of uh, uh, sexual assault or child abuse or whatever. There's so many things. Granted, I don't understand some of those things. I have not experienced some of those bitternesses. But God's word makes it quite clear that we're to forgive. Let me give you a personal example just from my own life. Um, it, uh, I, this isn't something that uh, I've kept private or anything else. I've shared it before. But uh, as, a young per- as a child, I was adopted. I was born out of wedlock. And, uh, um, you know, obviously it was not, nothing in my doing. So, you know, I don't feel bad about that aspect of it. But um, when my dad married my mom or my the man I knew as my dad, married my, know as my dad married my mom, he adopted me. And I didn't know anything about this until after my mom died. And then my dad came to me and said, uh, after mom's death, and she had battled cancer for a couple of years, and, you know, I kind of de- dealt with some bitterness with God about why he took my mom away from me at that time. I mean, he has done so many great things, he couldn't handle colon cancer. What's this, you know? And, you know, but I understood that God was working and it served his purpose. And I had to, you know, seek forgiveness for that and understand that God was working in his life. But then a couple of months after mom died, then dad says, I got something to tell you. I promised your mom I would never tell you. And I've honored that until she died. But I think you need to know something that you're not aware of. And he told me about the adoption. And I was kind of shocked at first, and I thought, wow, man. You know, and when he told me, he talked to me, and he says, right now, I don't want to talk to you about it. I want to get you a few weeks to go ahead and figure, you know, sort through all of this. And then, if you've got questions, we'll sit down and talk. Well, I dealt with that for a week or so. I didn't tell Charlotte, didn't tell the kids, because, man, I was angry. I was angry with my mom. Why couldn't mom tell me? But she had her reasons. And, you know, I dealt with that. I talked to my brothers, and they said, Alan, you got to realize, Mom had her reasons. You know what they were, but she had her reasons. And, you know, I began to soften my heart, and, you know, I told Charlotte about it, told the kids about it. And, uh, you know, I got past that, but I kind of struggled with that. But I had to get rid of that bitterness because I carried that with me, and it affected me. Maybe it didn't affect on the outward I still have my job. I still have my relationship with Charlotte and the kids. And maybe they didn't see that, but I knew it was there. And I had to deal with it. And I did. So after a while, I got with my dad. And I said, okay, Dad, I got the questions. Let's start talking about it. And uh, Dad was really good about it. We sat down. And, uh, you know, he didn't have all the details. But, you know, he, he, so, he told me how it happened, uh, some of the things that took place that... When they got married, uh, a couple of years later, you know, he adopted me as his son. And we went through all that process, and he gave me some names of the lawyer that handled the adoption. And so, he, you know, he got me started. And then he moved back to Kansas shortly thereafter. And so I called him up one day, and I said, Dad, I want to come back there and find out more. I want to find out more about, you know, what took place and stuff like that. I want to go back to the town that I was born in and stuff. He said, not a problem. I'll come on back. And uh, I got, talked to my little brother. He's a librarian. I figured we'd be doing some research. So I, I brought him with me, and off we went back to where the little town I was born in. And it's really kind of cool because I got to talk to a couple of people that actually knew my biological father. 
I got to see the place that he owned a gas station. I got to see where that was at. Um, got to do research. We went to the local newspaper and uh, told him, you know, we wanted to do a background check on this individual. I'd like to see what's written about him, stuff like that. Well, you know, this little town of 2,000 people, whatever, uh, I had to kind of laugh because they said, well, our records don't go back that far because of the great flood of 1989 wiped out the newspaper. So I said, the great flood of 1989, I said, I never read about that. But, you know, it was a small town of 2,000 people. Took out the newspaper, but the library was still there. So we went to the library, and then that was my little brother's uh, forte. And so we started doing the research and the microfilms and the computers and stuff like that. Got a ton of information about my biological father. So we printed it all out and took it home. I started reading it and figured out, found out that, hey, you know, this guy had some good things. He was a, uh, um, a shotgun uh, uh, enthusiast. He, owned, uh, he was part of a, a shooting team. He had a U.S. championship to his name. He had trained other U.S. champions, some Olympians, things like that. So I thought, oh, cool. So I'm reading through that. Then I got to the obituaries. And I started reading his obituary about some of his accomplishments and things like, like, like that, and it was pretty good. Then we came to the point of survivors. And it lists a couple of aunts, and it listed uh, a couple of his aunts, it listed her brother, and that was it. It didn't list me. And then the bitterness came back. And then I began to research some more because in the, I thought, I want to look at the court records. So, you know, called the courthouse, and they said, well, we'll see what we can do, but, you know, this was in 1962, you know, before computers, we've got all our records in the basement, they're in boxes, and I said, I can give you a week about where it took place, and it just so happened that the clerk that worked in that court had worked in the court for 40 years. So it was the same clerk that handled my case. So that was kind of cool. So she says, I'll see what I can do for you, Alan. So she went down in the basement. Lo and behold, she found all the records uh, of the whole adoption thing, the subpoenas, the court hearings, everything that took place. And I began to read, those hear- read through those hearings, and I realized that my biological father was served three times to appear in court, never appeared in court, refused to acknowledge my existence. Talk about bitterness. Well, that's set in again. But I realized I needed to forgive him. I didn't understand the circumstances. He was already dead at this time. He wasn't living. He had died before my wife and I had even got married. So I couldn't approach him. Couldn't approach my mom. You know? So I had to forgive each one of them and get past that bitterness because it just eaten me up on the inside. And then once I did that... It was such a relief to have that removed. But then I got to see the real picture. I got to see that there was a a man that adopted me, that took me away from all of that, and gave me an opportunity to succeed in someplace else. And just like in Joseph's life, I think, wow, God was working all the time in my life to get me to a point to be in another place at another time to serve his purpose and in his time. And I look at that and I think, wow, that's exciting. But I would have never seen that 
if I would have allowed that bitterness to continue to swell. God doesn't want us to have bitterness in our heart. He wants to forgive, forgive others. doesn't matter what the offense is. He tells us we're mandated to forgive one another because we don't need to carry that. It's not our responsibility to seek revenge. God's word tells us over and over again, that's his job. He wants us to live a fruitful life full of joy and peace. And the only way that you can do that is through forgiveness, adding forgiveness to your heart. What it comes down to is this. Forgiveness is a choice. It is. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. God's word commands you to do it. You have to choose whether to bring forgiveness into your life or not, regardless of the offense. And then uh, it's a choice. It's an act of the will. It's not a feeling. The question I have for you this morning is this. Do you want to be heart healthy? Do you want to be experience the joy that God has for you? Forgiveness must be part of that daily lifestyle. It's got to be there. Just as last week love has to be part of it, forgiveness has to be part of it also. Let's pray. Thank you for worshiping with us here at Oasis Online. If this message was an encouragement to you, would you send me an email and let me know at pastor at obclv.org. Before you go, go check us out at oasisbaptistchurch.org. And if we can be of any help to you or an encouragement to you, please let us know. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day.